when you bring in diverse voices, different voices from different roles, it makes the original group smarter because it forces them to look at how they're approaching things and recognize where there are gaps. Mm-hmm. And so that's what my encouragement is for any firm who's going through this practice of helping them understand of you need these other people so that you can be smarter. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Tammy Lee, founder of RA Strategic Implementation and Execution and an advisor as well at U.S. Capital Wealth Advisors. And more importantly, one of my really close friends. How are you? Good to see you. Hi, my friend. How are you doing? I am phenomenal. How are you? How's the family? How's everybody? I'm good. We're doing well. It's nice and warm in Southern California, right? Yeah. Don't know how it is for you right now. It's colder, but it's warmer than it was this weekend. So we're just kind of, we're all getting colds in the flu over here because we go from 50 to 80 to 50 to 80. It just makes no sense. But that's not what we're here for, right? We're here to talk about you and all of your knowledge. I mean, so we are peers in the cohort in the Schwab Executive Leadership Program. We've built our friendship and, and kind of just grown you, I've just been inspired by what you've done in the industry. You've, you've got so much knowledge and experience, and I'm, I'm excited for you to share it. You started your own, own firm as long, along with being an advisor as well. Um, and so we're going to dive into everything operationally. We're going to talk about operations. Sure. We're going to talk sure. about innovation. We're going to talk about leadership, things that we, can, we, we chat about a good bit at conferences and on the phone. But before we do... You know, I always like to get to know our guests and, and I like to do it in my own unique, weird way. And, and the way that I do that is I just say, you know, Tammy Lee, what did you want to be at the age of 13? I definitely did not think I would be working in finance. I will tell you that when I was 13, I wanted to be a writer. I was an English and Asian American studies major when I went to college. And when I graduated, I needed a job. And I was very fortunate that a girlfriend of mine helped me get a job in finance. But I was honest with them. I didn't know the difference between a stock and a bond. If you look at 13-year-old Tammy, they handed us a newspaper and said, you guys need to learn about the stock market. And 13-year-old Tammy likes soda. So I picked Pepsi. No other understanding beyond that. I started in operations and thought that it would be a day job that would kind of keep a roof over my head and help me pay my student loans until I was able to go to grad school and become a writer. At some point, there's a realization that unless Oprah herself picked my book, I probably was not going to survive on a writer's salary. So I had to pivot and had to kind of reassess where I was. And the firm that I was with basically said, hey, if you study and you pass, you're seven, you get a bonus. And you're 22 years old and you want the bonus. So you study and you pass and you get the bonus. And a little while goes on. And they're like, well, you know, I think she's getting bored. We should encourage her to do some more. So why don't you study for your 66? And so I studied, I passed, I got my 66. Had zero idea what to do with this. They're like, you can work with clients now. And I had no idea. I was very fortunate to have a mentor who worked the bond desk. And he said, hey, come sit with me every day and I'm going to teach you the practical application of how our industry works, not the book knowledge, not the things you need to pass the exam, but how this is all working. And so I drank a ridiculous amount of coffee to sit at his desk from 5 a.m. until 8 a.m. when my actual job started, right? And it was a mutually beneficial relationship. I did research for him, right? So this is during what was the McCain-Obama campaign, right, when the big argument is on healthcare, on what would eventually become the Affordable Care Act, right? And he was like, break it down for me. 
explain to me how this affects pharmaceuticals, medical devices, insurance, obviously all these different things. And I did the research and saw how this was all integrated together and really, really enjoyed it. In the meantime, he taught me a lot of things of like how puts and calls work. Right. And at the end of the experience, he was like, hey, you're pretty smart. Why don't you study for your CFA? I think you could do it. And I, I, I say this with all the respect in the world to CFA, knowing that you're a CFA, but most CFAs are incredibly smart, very research oriented, but generally stay behind the screens and not people, people, right? <laughs> and you're a CFP as well. So I, I can say this, but I knew that I liked talking to people. I liked interacting with clients. And so kind of took a step back and started learning about the CFP. And during that time frame, I get my first clients, my parents are my first clients, not uncommon to have parents who want to support their kids. And my parents were Vietnamese refugees. They came to the States and had to start all over from scratch. And when my siblings and I went to college, we all went to college on grants and scholarships and student loans. And while my parents did a really good job for their retirement, they really struggled in other areas of their financial picture. And I remember having a conversation with my dad and being like, well, why didn't you work with an advisor or a financial planner? And his response was, I couldn't have afforded that. And I was like, it's actually not as expensive as you think it is. And I think this was the moment for me where I was like, wait, I want to work with people who are just like my parents. They're just trying to provide a better opportunity for their kids and they don't know what to go. And so started studying for my CFP, eventually passed the exam, became a sport advisor for a financial planning firm, worked my way up because I had the background in operations and playing so many different roles from compliance to billing to creating plans, to meeting with clients, to giving participant advice, right? I knew how to be a bridge between all these different roles. And it kind of led me to eventually becoming COO of an RIA based out in Irvine and realized that I really, really enjoyed developing people and training them and helping them to the point where they can be leveraging their biggest strengths to help other people have access to really good quality advice. I love that story. And we've talked about the writing side of it. And you've started to get back into writing a little bit more, which is is inspiring and exciting as well. And we're going to touch on some of that here in a little bit. And I want to talk about some of that transition, right? So you, you were on the bond desk. You learned a lot about the business. You were in all different types of roles. And then you you became a COO at, a, at a, an RIA firm. And you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about with regards to leadership and training, and I, I think it's so key, especially on operations, which is a kind of the backbone of an RIA firm, that you need to have consistency. I talk about it with the four C's, and consistency is one of them, where your clients need to understand what they're going to get every time they call you. And some people think that that's sterile, but really that's actually a, a foundational element, one of four foundational elements of trust, that that they get the same thing consistently. Absolutely. And they can be a little bit different, but there's there's a whole aspect of this training and, and leading operations teams to train to ensure that they're delivering the same type of service to every individual client. How have you seen building this training regimen in, in the best way to train teams, especially on the operations side, to create consistent processes to deliver consistent service to the end client? I think... One of the things that firms need to do is actually take a step back. They need to look at the bigger picture because different clients have different needs and you have to be able to understand your clients. One of the most common questions that couples ask is, what do you want for dinner, right? You might want frozen pizza and your wife might want a gourmet meal. That's not the same dinner offering, right? 
Part of it is, is understanding what your clients need and understanding, okay, this is what this client is going to require. And this is what a different client is going to require. And then building around those practices. The other part is actually taking a look and doing a friction audit. I'm a big fan of friction audits, seeing where your bottlenecks are and seeing where the problems are, because the ways that clients were onboarded 10, 15 years ago are not the same as they are today. We have better tools to do this. There's always going to be people who are going to want pen and paper, but there's also tools that make us more efficient. And there's a tension between navigating between innovating and staying the same. Humans, by nature, are creatures of habit. We don't want to learn a new way to brush our teeth every morning or wash our hair, right? It doesn't make any sense. But there are certain things where it doesn't necessarily make sense to do it in a, a manual sort of way, right? So I think a lot of times when firms are, are figuring out what to do, they do need to take the time to do a friction on it. See where the bottlenecks are and then actually taking the time to be like, okay, this is where I need to focus. And you can actually leverage your custodian relationships to do this, right? Relationship managers have at their fingertips reports and data that says, okay, on this area, we have a higher NIGO rate than this area. When you onboard this way, it goes much smoother, it's faster, it's cleaner. And this way it doesn't, right? And then once you figure out which are the areas that have the most bottlenecks, then you can start developing a plan. And when you're developing a plan, one of the things that I think is most necessary to do is to make sure to have more than one or two voices at the table. I think most frequently our industry relies on advisors first, and I get it from a revenue and a client facing perspective, but you need it to be a whole team environment, right? I think previously the industry was much more built like a basketball team. You could have one superstar advisor and you had four kind of administrative roles behind them. They could go coast to coast by themselves. I think the industry has just changed now. It's requiring a lot more. Clients are asking a lot more. There's a lot more tools. And now we're changing to playing soccer. And when you're doing that, you need to be able to pass the ball really well to the next person because there's no way for a single person to go coast to coast by themselves. Mm, yeah, unless you're Leona Messi. But other than that, then he still yes, probably but, can't do it because he can only do it once in a while. I get, I, yes. I kid, on, I kid on that point. But to that point, I think you talked on two topics that I want to dive into for a second. And, sure. and the first one that I, I think is super interesting, and I just want to make a comment on, and then the second one I want to dive into is, you know, you talk about the need to have multiple views and multiple people at the table. And I think that that is super key. And it's not just multiple people. It should be, as you were mentioning, multiple people from different departments or different areas of the business because that is how innovation works. It's not just one person's eureka moment. It is getting different perspectives, putting them together, tying them together, pulling the string, and then ultimately creating a, a, a different view. That is something that's important. And it takes time, which advisors And you are have to really keep testing about. it out to make sure it's successful. So in one of the programs that I ran, a pilot program, I made sure there were two advisors. I made sure there were two operations people. I made sure there were two people from the trading team and a compliance person. I wanted to have all of their feedback and I wanted to make sure that they knew this was a live document. I was not married to the first draft of this. I rarely ever think the first draft of anything is perfect, right? We keep iterating so that it gets better. And so we put it together. And sometimes they gave me feedback that I didn't think about it where they're like, hey, we don't know what that acronym is. You're going to have to spell it out because that's not an easy way to do it. Or somebody would be like, hey, you forgot to add this point. We need to add this. And then we try it out for six weeks. They'd give me feedback and say, hey, this is what we need to improve or this is what is working really well. And then as it went better, we would start expanding it to bigger and bigger groups. And the idea is that we're always going to work on trying to improve it. It's not to say that I'm going to change it every single time, 
I'm going to take the feedback and the one that is most valuable and most impactful, I'm absolutely going to apply it. But I do want that feedback because for the team to be successful, everybody has to be able to work very efficiently. I love that. And I, and I think what we've just talked about were two ends. There's a middle ground that I want to dive into, right? We've talked about the prototyping stage and the iteration stage of innovation, yep. of, of having a workflow, having a small group, iterating on it, then expanding it. That's kind of stage maybe three, four, five, et cetera. And we talked about stage one, which is getting multiple people from different areas of the business into a room. But then I want to talk about stage two and three, which is the building of the workflow and the building of the process and the, and the, the mapping of all this out. I, I found that this is one of the more difficult parts because you, know, you have the curse of knowledge where everybody just has been doing it for so long. Like you were saying, they were the star basketball player. They just did it. It's hard for them to remember how the specifics that they can relate it to someone new doing it to create the consistency that's delivered that they want to replicate. How do you help and how do you suggest firms work to overcome that? Because I've always seen the rub being just go and do it, like figure it out, do it this way. And, and it's too much time to go into a room and do a brainstorm and do a kind of a, a whiteboarding session. So how, how have you seen firms do this well or from your own experiences just to kind of overcome that and to do a really good job in that middle stage of, of this process? So part of that is as the leader who is leading this new endeavor, right? I encourage them to take a beat, right? There is a Greek philosopher, his name is Epictetus, right? And he said, you have two eyes, two ears, and one mouth. Use them accordingly. And I think a lot of times when we go into the room, we start talking and people are bouncing off of each other and you're not looking around and you're not listening, right? You're just talking. And I, I, I'm i a big fan of introverts because I think they frequently are able to see and hear things that the rest of us extroverts can't because we're too busy talking, honestly, because they're going to see things that we can't. And I think part of it is giving people the space. So part of it is, is people need to do their homework. They need to think about this before going to the meeting. They need to be prepared. They shouldn't be coming in with no idea what is going on. Secondarily, if you're the leader who's leading this discussion, you practice being quiet. You practice listening and be very aware of the hippo in the room. Hippo stands for the highest paid person's opinion. That person can dominate the discussion and drown everybody else out and not necessarily be the best person to be speaking here. We want to encourage everybody to speak, right? And I can cite a Northwestern study that actually says when you bring diverse voices to the table, not just race and gender, but those included as well, but from a variety of roles, it actually makes the original group smarter. Most of the time people will say, oh, you should bring in diverse voices because it gives them the opportunity to learn. Yes, it does. But the more important thing is when you bring in diverse voices, different voices from different roles, it makes the original group smarter because it forces them to look at how they're approaching things and recognize where there are gaps. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's what my encouragement is for any firm who's going through this practice of helping them understand of you need these other people so that you can be smarter. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I think that's so good. And, you know, there's a challenge when you're in that room to especially if you're the leader in that room, there's a challenge to be quiet because you have a vision of how you want to be done. But you, yep. you need the other people's opinion. Otherwise, it becomes there's no ownership by the other people, which means that they're the ones that are going to be implementing it, which means that they're not going to have the ownership and the power to go and, and do it. And when, when a problem comes, they may know it on a surface level, but when a challenge comes and they need to act, they're not going to know how to act because it wasn't their opinion. They just were doing as opposed to being part of it. And I think that that's a really big key. 
Yeah. And then part of it is giving people the different opportunities. They approach things differently, right? So this is why people should do their homework going into the meeting of, hey, this is what we're going to discuss. I want you guys to spend half an hour thinking about it ahead of time and have three bullet points. And you can have the bullet points out for everybody to see because then it will lead the discussion better. It's not coming up with something brand new on the spot. And it gives the people who might be a little bit shyer and a little bit more nervous about talking in front of the group, it gives them the platform where they can actually have more agency and speak up. The power of preparation. I think that not enough people put in preparation to meetings and we could have maybe fewer meetings and more intentional meetings and, and concise meetings if we put in some prep before it. I want to shift gears for a second and shift over to kind of more on the innovation side, right? We've talked about building sure. processes and, and innovation impacts processes and workflows. And, you know, this is something that I, I've been a really big proponent of. And I, I sometimes find myself just talking to a wall about it because it's just, it's something that's, it's, it, it feels different. It's not normal, right? When you think about wealth management and innovation, how, how have you seen from your experiences firms that embrace innovation or or from your perspective, based on your research and your readings and your writings, how can firms embrace innovation in an impactful way without disturbing what they do day to day, but still kind of embracing sure. innovation to push their firm forward? So I think part of it is you have to break it down. You can't innovate every single process that you want. It's just not reasonable and it's not scalable. The bigger issue most firms have is they're innovating too many things at the same time and none of them are successful. So my encouragement for a lot of firms is to pick one or two to focus on. If your focus is we're going to have better client experience or we're going to have better meetings and better service to our clients, this is what we're focused on. Everything drives towards that, right? If we're focused on marketing and looking out and bringing in more, then that is what you're focused on. Don't try to do too many things at once. I think we all think that we're really good multitaskers and sometimes we are, but we're not. 24-7, right? I think most of us have something like 17 different tabs open, and I'd say five of them are probably frozen. Yeah. Or, or logged out. They logged you out, so you have exactly. to log back in. It's, a, it's of no value. Yeah, and I think the bigger thing is, is a lot of times we start these practices, they go well for a few months, and then we stop reevaluating. It's not to say you need to spend the same amount of hours on them when you first started, but you do kind of need to reassess every now and then and be like, okay, this is how it's going. Let's keep it this way. Or, hey, we need to pivot and do something else, right? I think a lot of times everybody starts practices, and we've seen this countless times. It comes at the cost of the client experience when you roll something out. And in nine months, you're not doing it anymore because you've now gotten a new shiny object that you're concerned with. And the clients are like, hey, what happened to that thing that you were doing before? And you're like, oh, yeah, that. Yeah. You know, I think that one of the challenges I think with innovation is the tangibility of it. And when things get crazy and hectic, it's the first thing that goes to the wayside. But it's the also sure. the first thing that comes to mind when things go, when you know what hits the wall. It's like, how do we change this? And and by that time, you're not really innovating. You're just problem solving because sure. you, you got to get you're a triaging. solution so quickly, right? You're just triaging. Like, well, we need to solve this problem. Who's got the best answer? Let's go do it and we'll figure it out later. And then when things are good, you know, you're like, ah, oh, we'll, we'll do that innovation thing. But then, you know, when things get busy, it's like, all right, what's the first thing we're going to cut? Innovation. Everybody focus on the core. And I, I think that that mentality is, it, it's hurt. It hurts. It hurts companies sure. more. I I, I, I've just been, you know, I've been doing some research for a piece on this about change and how to lead a team in, a, in an era of innovation. 
And you, know, you think about like Microsoft with their new CEO from 2014 to now, like there's a massive change. Sure. And you think about Domino's Pizza, right? There's massive innovation. But what caused it was they were running up against some really tough times. And so if you're a firm that wants to stay ahead and continue to grow your team and inspire your team to be further thinking ahead, not just in today, I think you have to invest in innovation constantly at that point. Agreed. And I also think you have to look at outside sources, right? I think we're frequently just looking inside our house and saying, hey, we got to do this. But there's so much that can actually be learned from other industries and other companies on what they did. I think people look at the end product and like, oh, this is really good now, but they don't look at what it took to get there. Google was not this first search engine. They were actually, I think, the 22nd. There was Jeeves and GeoCities and all these different other ones. I can't think of all of their names off the top of my head. But part of what it was, was they learned from other industries and other people who were pioneers in that space. So they could figure out what they were doing wrong so they could figure out what they were doing right. So I think there's a value in innovating, but it's also a value in understanding what other people in the space are doing, whether it's in your industry or outside your industry. I think there's a value in networking groups. I think there's a value in study groups. I think there's a value in just chatting with other friends and being like, oh, that's a good idea. Well, it's just like it's just like MySpace. You know, Facebook didn't create social media. MySpace did. And Instacart didn't create grocery delivery. Webvan did back in the 2000s. And Amazon, everybody learned from the past failures. And so can you, sure. if you if you can study and learn from what people tried and didn't do right. And maybe there's a nugget in there that will allow you to do it differently now that there's either new technology, new information, new knowledge, whatever it may be that can then spur. And you don't necessarily have to use all of it as soon as you find out about it. There are plenty of right, times right. that I'm in study groups or I'm talking to different friends. I'm like, that's a really cool idea but we do not have the bandwidth to apply that now. So I'm just going to put this in a notepad and I'm going to make sure to kind of remember to check back on this every now and then. And when we're there, then we'll do this. And then we'll have a longer discussion on how to apply it, right? I think most of the time we get really excited about new things. And so we start applying it, but we're not really setting ourselves up for success. Yeah, I I think that's great. I want to transition a little bit to teams and, and building team success and overall growth. We've talked a lot about different strategies to help with team development, right? We talked initially about building processes and workflows. We talked about innovation. But now, to your point, we need the entire soccer team playing together, right? We now need them all moving in the same direction with the ball or skating to the puck, whatever it may be. So how have you seen or what are some strategies or what have you learned that best promote team development and spur overall growth via that team development? What are some strategies that firms can implement to help grow individuals and grow teams or grow teams more specifically, actually? So one of my favorite things to do is called Feedback Friday. And this is something I do with all the teams that I run. And it's two parts. It's an assessment by the report, right? Whoever I'm working with. And then it's an assessment on my end. So I encourage firms to do self-assessments every year, at least twice a year, not just at annual review time. I'm not a fan of just box checking. I want a self-assessment because I want to see what people want to grow in, right? And part of it is is understanding, and this is coming from the EOS model of love it and good at it, like it and good at it, don't like it and good at it, and 
don't like it and not good at it, right? My big belief is is people can spend the vast majority of their time in where they love it and good at it and they like it and good at it and less of their time where they don't like it and they're not good at it or don't like it and are good at it, they're going to be much more engaged. And it's a 10-6-2 rule, right? Employees who are 10% more engaged are 6% more productive. If they're 6% more productive, they're going to be 2% more profitable. And part of it is, is you really align with what they need. And so an example was there was a team that I was working with and there are a couple of different CSAs. They all had the exact same title, right? And there was a woman on the team. She was a little bit older and she really struggled on the technology front. Something that would take somebody half an hour to build in Excel would take her several hours, right? But where she really, really excelled well, she was great on the phones. Clients loved her, especially when it came to technology, because she understood the same pitfalls that they had, right? And anybody who has helped their parents with technology understands just how frustrating this is, right? And the same time, I had another person on that team who was a younger gentleman, not trying to stereotype Gen Z, but was really good on the technology, but struggled like crazy on the phone to the degree where it was just painful listening to the conversation. And part of it was, was as a manager, as a person that was leading them, was understanding their different strengths, right? I think we think, oh, everybody has the same title. They have the same responsibilities. And I don't think it needs to be that way. You play to the strengths. And so part of it was, was for this woman, we had her on the phone much more often because she was good at it and she enjoyed it. And she felt like she was doing something that mattered, right? And it was appreciated. And for the gentleman, what I did with him is I had him spend a lot more time with the tech because he was good at it. He enjoyed it. It's not to say that they didn't need to develop their skills. And this is where Feedback Friday comes in, right? So if I have eight reports, I meet with a different report every Friday. It's not to say that we don't talk on a daily basis, but on a daily basis, you're talking about, hey, is this account open? Is this wire going out? Is this meeting prepped, et cetera, et cetera. But they get one dedicated hour on Friday on whatever day they're assigned, and it's Feedback Friday, and it's mutual, right? So part of it is if you are my report, I tell you, hey, next Friday is your day, Matt. And you're like, great. There's this one thing I really want to learn about. And you tell me what it is. If you want to learn about portfolios and I'm the best person to teach it to you, then I will teach it to you. If I'm not the best person, I will bring that person in. And for that first and a half an hour, they'll teach it to you. I make sure to stay in the conversation because I want to make sure it's not an economics professor talking to a five-year-old. I want to make sure, again, it's mutually beneficial, right? And that you learn the thing that you want to learn. But that second half an hour is working on things that I see, things that I want them to grow in. And so for the two individuals that I'm sharing about, for that woman, I had her spend more of her time on the phone. It wasn't to say that I didn't address some of the tech issues. I sent her on an Excel boot camp, right? And for the gentleman, I had him spend more time working on the tech and on the spreadsheeting, but we also role-played phone calls until he was comfortable on the phone. Mm. And the idea is when you do this and everybody has kind of an assigned day, right? If there's eight people, the next time that I have that feedback Friday with them, there's an accountability. There's a development process. I think our industry does some training in the beginning when people are hired, but they don't do a lot of development. And if we really want to grow as an industry, if we really want to be able to meet high expectations, we have to be able to develop. I think Cerulli had a study that said that 37% of advisors are baby boomers. They're going to retire in the next 10 years. And if they're not training and developing the next generation who's going to come in, we're all kind of screwed. So part of it is, is understanding that you have to play the long game. You have to develop the future if you want us to continue to grow. And it takes work. It's effort. It's investing time. Not and just money in them, investing your own time in there and consistency, right? Another value of, of, of trust. You know, we're, we're speaking about 
kind of the investment of time in our people. And, and, and we mentioned it kind of, you, you alluded to it a little bit with like Gen Z and some of the different skill sets that they have and their upbringing and everything of that nature. And, you know, the, the team dynamics are changing because of the generation sure. who's owning the, the team based on what generation they're in and their background. But we also are seeing the client dynamics shift and the client needs shift and evolve as well because who is having wealth is 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 constantly evolving. Baby boomers still have a lot of the wealth, but now Gen X and some millennials and Gen Z eventually. And firms have to evolve with that. And so I'm curious how firms can keep up with the constant changing evolution of, of clients and and or is it even a necessary evil for them to focus on? Or should they just say, you know what, this is who I serve, this is what I'm gonna serve and I'm just gonna focus here and I'm, I'm gonna disregard everything else that's out there. Or is there a strategy they can put into place to evolve with the changing dynamics, just like we're having change on the client side, just like we're having changing dynamics on the team member side? I'm not a fan of the, it ain't broke, don't fix it. I, I think it's an excuse for mediocrity, honestly, right? And I think if firms want to grow, they have to do these things. So yeah, baby boomers are going to retire in the next 10 years. But you also have to look at the fact that in that 10 years, that represents $30 trillion that is going to move largely from men to women. My goal is to make wealth and access, access to financial advice more accessible, particularly to underrepresented and underserved communities. And part of it is, is $30 trillion is going to move to largely women, right? Women are graduating from college from a higher rate. They're living longer than the husbands, right? And they're having more control over the finances. Unless you want your clients to walk out the door in the next 10 years, you really have to think about it because in the example of baby boomers, once the husband dies, 70% of women will leave that advisor and find a different advisor who is more suited to their values and their needs if it has not already been addressed. And I think firms run the risk if they say, hey, no, we're just going to stick to what we know. And I also think part of this, this goes back to our discussion of you need more diverse voices at that table. You need to have the Gen Xers. You need to have the millennials. You need to have the Gen Z. Yes, that it's going to be a little disproportionate because that's where the assets are, but you need to have it because the AUM model does not necessarily work with the Gen Zs. They're probably going to be much more inclined to having a version of their own Netflix. They like the subscription. They like the ongoing engagement, seeing what value they have. And realistically, they don't have the assets to do an AUM model. But they could do a subscription model that will allow you to start working with them when they're really young. When I first started working with clients, my niche was a lot of grad students who were in medical school, dental school, optometry school, law school. They had teeny tiny rollovers that were largely a lot of work, right? And they were going to have massive student loans, but they were eventually going to make really good money. And because I was willing to work with them really early, they continued to stay with me over the years. I think... Part of it is, is our industry has gotten a little stuck in their ways and there's a lot of power with older generations and I get it. There's experience and there's value there, but ignoring the voices of younger generation means that you're going to miss out on other opportunities. And for Gen Xers and millennials, a big concern for them is, hey, how am I going to send my kids to college, right? That wasn't part of the AUM model because it was largely based on retirement. And for Gen Zers, they're like, we're never going to get Social Security. So we don't really care about it that way. We want to live the most fulfilling life we can have now. 
Mm, right. Yeah. So part of it is, is understanding how the world has changed and then making sure that your leadership teams are reflective of that. I think I saw something about how most RAs at this point are actually gender equal as far as like having about 46% women. The irony though is of that, 75% of those women are in administrative roles. They're in operational roles, right? If the money is going to transfer to women, you need to have more women who are in advisory roles. You need to have more than just 22% of women in executive leadership roles. You need to be able to have people to understand it. I think Money Quotient had done a white paper where they had actually pointed out that there's a shift in what clients are looking for. They're not just looking for returns. They're looking for working with advisors who understand their goals and their values, who are aligned with what they're doing and understand their long-term goals and not just beating the market on an annual basis. Yeah, and I th- you know, you, you think about the shifting demographics of our workforce, you know, millennials and Gen Z, et cetera, and the shifting demographics of where wealth is. And there's an opportunity to not necessarily change who you are as a firm, but to add on to what you do as a firm, right? Give sure. and empower and give opportunity to the younger generation of team members to serve the younger generation of clients and see how they go. See if they can reinvent the business model and disrupt it without disrupting and and, and, and putting at risk the core business. And I think that too many firms are, are fearful of, of the cannibalization or the loss of focus. But if you can start a segment over there, there's a ton of opportunity to create business lines that are unique and not just, it's not a matter of shifting your entire business. It's a matter of tapping into the resources that you have to identify potential new avenues for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, not just necessarily for today. And I think that that's something that's super interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of it is, is people have to understand that if the highest aim of the captain was to preserve the ship, he'd never leave the dock. It's actually a Thomas Aquinas quote, right? Part of it is, is you kind of have to venture out into uncharted waters and learn to navigate those things. Gen Z learns about wealth very differently than the rest of us do, right? And some of it's really cool. I like some of the things that influencers do. Having these 30-second snapshots are fantastic. Does it apply to everyone? No. But I think understanding certain things to approach different demographics and be able to expand your client base is a smart business decision. Yeah, I agree. I, I I love that. I I love that so much. That you you don't learn until you do, and when you fail, you learn more, and you continue to iterate, and you figure something else out. And so you just got to have that mentality. I want to wrap up with this question before I do my two final wrap up questions. But I want to talk a little bit more about that article that you wrote on Advisor Hub, and we we alluded to it a little bit with the regards to the the basketball player, you know, star basketball player moving into a soccer team, and we talked a little bit about it on the process side. I, I'm just curious, you know, from that article. Like, what are some of the challenges that firms need to be aware of and or ways to overcome such challenges to make that transition? Because, I mean, firms, you know, I think about like our firm here, right? It started with just my dad and now we have 80 some employees and it's a different firm than it was there. And it was a different firm than he ever envisioned us getting to. And there was a lot of transitions that have to happen throughout that journey to get to this point. And some of them worked, some of them didn't. Some of them took ego that you had to like kind of back off of. So, from that piece, what have you seen to be the key to success of transitioning from the star basketball player to being just a member of a well and cohesive soccer team? I think it's about the vision of the leadership team. It's figuring out if you want to go fast or if you want to go far, right? There's an African proverb that I really like. And it says, if you want to go fast, go alone. 
If you want to go far, go together. You and I might be really smart, but we're never going to be smarter than collectively 15 other people put together, right? Part of it is, is understanding, hey, I need the rest of this team and I need to do this consistently. And I also need to understand that certain things are not the best use of my time, right? There are certain things I really enjoy doing, but I'm not the best at it. I'm not the fastest at it. So I do need to trust my team to do this. The beauty of soccer is knowing that your teammate can carry the ball down the line, that you are not necessarily responsible 24-7. I think advisors have this mentality of we always need to be available. We always need to answer the emails. We always need to answer the texts. We almost need to answer the calls. But there's a beauty in being able to have time with your family and go on vacation, being present with the people that you're with and not being on the clock and understanding of, hey, I can trust my team to do this, but you have to have good communication. You have to be consistent. You have to have that time carved out and have everybody rowing in the same direction with the boat and recognizing that you need everybody to be successful. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I just love that analogy that you put in that article. I mean, you are, you know, you, you said it, the 13-year-old Tammy Lee wanted to be a writer and you can see it. You have a, you have a, an ability to to explain concepts and words and as well as talking. And this has been incredible. I mean, we could talk for hours. We tend to on conversations, yeah. but I'm going to let you get back to, to your business as well. But before I do, there's two questions I have to ask because I ask all my guests and I'm a, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm a curious person. I like to learn from people a lot smarter than me, like yourself. And I like to do so through reading. And so sure. I'm curious, what's one book out there that you think everybody should read if they haven't or reread if they have already read it before? So I have two, so I'm going to cheat on that one. That's right? all right. I'll let um, it slide. The first book is called Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage. It's by Dr. Laura Huang. I think she's a Harvard business professor. And it's about the entire concept of intelligent failure, learning from your mistakes, figuring out how to do it better, learning from other people's mistakes, and figuring out how to leverage that so you can do better. The other book that I really liked, and I, I recommend this to everybody, is Julia Borston from CNBC. Julia Borston wrote a book called When Women Lead. And this is where she talks about how women tend to be better at preventing fires, whereas men tend to be firefighters. She brings in why diverse opinions matter, why overlooked voices previously have come at the cost of firms, right? And she brings in and shows how women have actually been able to achieve much more because they are harnessing the power of collective voices. They know how to work communally and they know how to go over barriers so that everybody can be successful. I know you and I both have kids. We both have a son and a daughter, right? And my hope is that our daughters have the same opportunities that our sons have. I, I'm into that one. I'm into that one. Well, given how my daughter is two years in, I don't know if she's going to have any problem with it. She likes to be feisty and <laughs> same with mine. anyway. Same so with mine. I think she'll be hopefully just fine. Well, and, and then the last question I like to ask, we talked about a ton here, and I always like to give our listeners something actionable to take away from the, each podcast. I mean, there's so much juice and gold in this one, but what's one piece of actionable advice that you hope our listeners can take away and either implement today or tomorrow and better themselves or their firm? Maybe we talked about, maybe we didn't, but something that's actionable they can take. Sure. One of my favorite quotes is by the late, great Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's fight for the things you care about but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. You and I individually will only have so much impact. If we can actually, again, utilizing our teams and working with the people that we want, we will be able to do so much more. I love that. Always good with a quote from Ruth Ginsburg as well. So amazing stuff. 
Tammy Lee, I know how to get in touch with you. I'm sure many more people from this podcast are going to want to get in touch with you and continue to follow you on your journey. So what's the best way for people to get in touch and continue to follow you? Sure. They can follow me on LinkedIn, Tammy Lee CFP. It's pretty easy to find. Or else you can go to my website and set up some time. I'd be happy to chat with anybody who's looking to really just grow in their leadership and then scale their firms. You're the best, Tammy Lee. Thanks so much for spending some time with us here on Bridging the Gap. You're phenomenal. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. All right. Talk soon. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 